Section 4 of Ancient Ideals in Modern Life. Four Lectures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ancient Ideals in Modern Life. Four Lectures. By Annie Besant. Lecture 2. Temples, Priests, and Worship. Part 1. Brothers, if you look back to India twenty-five years ago, you will be struck with the fact that the growing youths of India at that time were very largely materialized through the influence of purely secular and Western training, that the tendency of the intelligent men of the time was to turn more and more away from their ancestral faith and to take as their prophets Huxley, Spencer, Mill, and Hegel, rather than the great rishis of the past. That tendency, fatal to all spiritual life, and therefore to the very life of India herself, has now most happily been checked. And we find, as we look round the young men of the day, that there is more and more inclination among them to learn about their religion, to respect the great scriptures, to regard the past with the reverence that is its due, and to nurse some dawning hopes of the revival of the past spirituality and past glory. That change is so clear, so marked, so indisputable, that it is recognized on all hands alike. Some speak of it with rejoicing, others with disapproval. But whether it be looked at by friend or by foe, by those who praise or by those who blame it, there is equally the recognition of the fact. On that point no challenge, no dispute arises. Side by side with this great revival of Hinduism, there has, of course, been a revival also of some things that are regrettable. For evil follows good, as the shadow follows the body, and we know from the highest authority that all actions are enveloped in evil, as fire is surrounded by smoke. It is one of the conditions of action in an imperfect world that evil shall ever tread on the heels of good and that all that we can hope to do is to get the preponderance of good. If we expect undiluted good, then we are doomed to disappointment. We must be content to win the most good with the least possible evil, and if we succeed in that, we shall have served our generation well. It is equally clear, I think, that all who take part in that great revival of religion, in however humble a way, must also do their utmost to minimize any evils which may follow on its progressive path. Those who have a share in the work of recalling the Indian people to their great ideals, and of striving to fan into flame the smoldering spark of spiritual life, have certainly the duty of giving warning of the dangers that attend on the revival, of trying to check abuses, at the same time that they stimulate religious fervor and true spirituality. Religion has two great enemies that have ever accompanied it along its path throughout the history of humanity. Materialism on the one side, superstition on the other. Both are dangerous to true religion. Both hold weapons whereby to destroy the work of religion, to render her useless to mankind. Materialism stands out a pronounced and open enemy, with sword uplifted, trying to strike her down. 
superstition more insidiously creeps up behind her, and veiling her own face in the mask of piety, offers the poisoned cup to her lips, striving to weaken, if not wholly to destroy. Those who are servants of religion must seek to guard her alike against the sword of the open foe and the poisoned cup of the secret enemy. For life may be destroyed, whether by sword thrust or by poison, and the faithful servant must guard the life of his mistress against both enemies, and warn the world of the double peril that assails her. But in dealing with such a subject as that to which we turn our thoughts this evening, we are faced with the greatest and subtlest of difficulties. I know of no subject which is harder to deal with rightly than the one to which we are now to devote our attention. Bound up as it is with all the feelings of reverence and devotion that ennoble and elevate humanity, sacred beyond all sacredness to those who know something of what lies beyond the visible, with the power of words too feeble to describe all that it includes, all that it indicates, how can one deal with those errors that injure it without seeming to touch the sacred ark in which the life of the nation is enclosed? There is a story in an ancient Hebrew scripture that, once the ark of the Lord was being taken along the road to its resting place, and as the oxen drew the ark, some roughness in the road made it shake backward and forward so that it seemed in peril of falling. A man, moved by hasty impulse, put forward a rough and careless hand to touch the ark of the Lord. The motive was good, but the action mistaken. As he touched the ark, the power of the life that was in it smote him, and he fell to the ground, senseless and slain, having touched so unprepared the holy ark of Israel. So great is the danger of touching these arks of spiritual life, unless the hand be purified, unless the heart be devoted. May the great gods protect me, who speak, and you, who listen, lest in our very desire of serving the great faith of our forefathers any irreverence should enter our hearts and wrong that which we earnestly desire to serve. If there were a great one whose limbs were loaded with fetters, who was chained so that he could not move to do his beneficent work, he would do a useful service, who strove to file away the fetters that loaded his limbs and prevented them from moving. And so it may be that as in the course of thousands of years the great truths of Hinduism have become surrounded on some points by errors, by superstitions, and by evil practices, we may be able, with all reverence for truth, to file away the fetters that clog the limbs of this greatest of religions, and so set her free in modern days, as she was in the ancient, to bless all India with her power, and to draw the hearts of all men to herself. Just because the religion is so high, there is danger, lest the errors encumbering her should injure more than if the religion were less lofty. A man who is standing on the ground cannot be much injured by a fall, but a man who has climbed up high may shatter his limbs in the falling. So it has ever been the case that where the holiest is degraded, the most harm is done. The loftier and the greater the ideal, the more fatal is the degradation of that ideal in its injurious power over the hearts and lives of men.
What was the temple in the ancient days? What the image of God? What the sacred shrine wherein it dwelt? What the holy places of pilgrimage? The Tirthas, whither men went, to cleanse alike the body and the mind? What were all these in the wonderful past, when every priest was a true knower of the Supreme, and when the sacred science of the self shone in all its glory over the sacred land of India? What the temple was in those ancient days, those perhaps best can tell, who know what the temples are today in the higher regions of the universe, the faint reflection of whose glory was once seen in the temples of Hinduism, in the sounding of the mantras uttered by lips worthy to recite them. What, then, was the temple in those days? The temple was the center of divine influence, the place where the presence of the gods was known and felt, where the glory of the gods would now and again shine forth in the eyes of the worshippers, and where the love of the bhakta would draw down a visible manifestation of the compassion of the deity. Everyone coming with love and devotion to such a temple found, descending upon him, a celestial influence that calmed the mind, that elevated the spirit, that changed all thoughts of the world into thoughts of heaven, and that made prayer arise unchecked by any obstacle, so that the man felt, for the time being, as if he had entered within the very gates of Svarga. So mighty a power was there that even the most careless man who came there was, for the moment, changed and spiritualized by the wondrous force which dwelt in the temple, by the power radiated from the image of the god within it. Such was the consecration in the ancient days, when wisdom and purity were always present in the leaders, in the days when knowledge spoke the mantra, when none might come near the temple as priest, whose heart and lips were not purified with the divine fire, when the priest, who took the offerings of the faithful, stood with outstretched hands that were pure, when every offering was sanctified by the love of the giver, and sanctified still further by the priest's hands as he took them to pass them on as offerings to the gods. So all alike were blessed, and the holy influence radiated all around the temple. Naturally, men dreamed that in the temple, and it was not all a dream, with the chanting of the mantras, the music of the divas mingled its heavenly strain, and that the worshippers unseen, but not unfelt, joined in the worship of men. Such was the ancient temple, a center of spiritual life, and the images that in those temples stood to remind the worshippers of those mighty ones, some of whose attributes were shown forth by symbols, by signs, by gestures, those great images were full of that power, which, in its lowest form, we speak of as magnetic, but which, in its highest form, is a mighty spiritual force. For, just as on the physical plane, a man may take an object, may magnetize it, and give it power to heal diseases by mere contact, so can great rishis, servants of the high gods, use the spiritual forces of which the physical magnetism is the faintest reflection, can pour that on the sacred image, can vivify it, can give it mighty power, so that the vibrations coming from it harmonize everything that approaches it. The bodies of the worshippers, the subtle body as well as the physical, are thus made to vibrate rhythmically with those higher vibrations, and thus cease to be obstacles to the spiritual life, 
and serve instead as vehicles whereby the spirit may reach them. So great is the force of such an image, so mighty the power that it can exercise over worshippers who come with faith and devotion, such the idea of what the image of a god should be. Such in truth it was in the old days, and such it might be today. Then there were the sacred Tirthas, to which men and women made pilgrimage, where they found some great Rishi, who, going down into the water, consecrated that water by his own spiritual influence and force, and gave it power which the bare water could by itself never have, who, by the pouring out of the spiritual life within him, imparted to the fluid the sacred power which affected the body, the mind, and the very spirit of those who went into it. In the ancient days, when the Rishi had done his consecrating work, his disciples went into the water after him, and then the crowd of pilgrims, treading with reverence, with solemnity, with dignity, entered into the flood, thus rendered magnetic, by the spiritual force poured out into it. Imagine to yourself those ceremonies of the past. See how they were pure. See how they were holy. See how no hard words were ever heard. How there was no roughness, no jostling, nothing that could disturb the sacred peace, the perfect harmony of the place. And then you may dimly feel what pilgrimage meant in those days. Then you may dimly feel what power of holiness came down on men in such a place to raise them above the world in which they were living. You can catch some faint idea, and it can only be the faintest, of what the gods can do for man, if man will only make the conditions that render it possible for them to act. If they will but prepare the physical world, so that the celestial life may flow down into clean vessels that will not pollute the holy flood that pours into them. If in those days of the past you could have attended one of the ancient sacrifices, if you could have been present at one of the ceremonies in those days, when the priests who served at the altar were every one of them learned in the Vedas, every one of them pure in heart and in life, at such a ceremony what would you have seen? You would have seen earthly priests serving at the earthly altar, and then, if your eyes were open, you would have seen the high gods who had come down in order to be partakers of the offerings that were laid on the altar. The great rishis, the sages, the mighty ones of the older days, came to bless those who were truly worshipping, to give the celestial benediction to the sacrifice that was pure, and to the worshippers who were worthy to receive it, vast hosts of heavenly visitors and heavenly choristers, singing in harmony with the mantras sung below, and rain of flowers, celestial flowers, as the sign that the sacrifice was accepted, that the gods were well pleased. So great was this religion in its older days, a copy of that which is mightiest in the unseen world, its temples models of celestial temples, its ceremonies a reflection of the ceremonies by which the spiritual evolution of the world is carried on, its priests representatives of that high priesthood, who in the very presence of the gods perform the yajna and the yoga by which alone the races of men are led along the path of the higher life, and are guided from the state of the brutes to the state of the gods themselves. This religion of Hinduism is the nearest copy of that divine ritual that exists on earth, 
given to man more perfectly modelled by the gods themselves than is the case with any other faith that has been given to the human race, and therefore is Hinduism dear to the heart of the occultist. Divine in its ideas, sacred and spiritual in its ceremonies, with all the mighty powers of the gods within it, that is the religion which your fathers have bequeathed to you. What have you done with that inheritance? Oh, you who boast yourselves their children! Nor was that great and magnificent ritual and public religious life the only thing that they gave to their beloved sons and daughters of the Indian land. They came into the family, as they came into the temples. They gave them gurus to teach them, to guard from dawn to sunset, the life of men and women, to guide from conception to cremation. They gave to the family gurus who should lead them step by step along the sacred path of life. There was no incident in the life that was not consecrated by the touch of the guru's hand. He gave the second birth, while the father and mother gave the physical birth only, and so was this the highest and most sacred of all earthly ties, the tie between the guru and the sisha. It was the holiest of all charges, the charge placed in the guru's hand to train the soul, to guide the feet along the ancient narrow path, as sharp as the edge of the razor. Such was the guru in the olden days, such his place in the family, such his help to those to whom he was sent. Nor may the Purohita be ignored, who performed the household ceremonies of religion as the guru gave the training to the soul. He also was wise and pure, he also learned and noble. If I name the name of Vashishta, I name one of those who was household priest in the elder days. Such, then, was this mighty religion, nay, a million times more than this, if only I had words whereby to tell it. No thought of yours can paint a picture more divine than was once seen in ancient India. All words fail in telling of its beauty. All language is cold to describe the glory of its power. What are the temples now? And what their servants? What the images and the tirthas? What is the family guru and the family prohita? Let us, remembering that great ideal, touch with careful hands all that represents it. But nonetheless, let us see whether there do not exist today evils of the gravest character which are preventing the work of this great religion, which are alienating the minds of some of the brightest children of India from their ancestral faith, which are weapons whereby those who believe not in this faith try to turn men's heart against it. I know, and you know it also too well, that when those who are not Hindus in belief speak of Hinduism, they do not speak of the glory of its scriptures, or of the greatness of its philosophy, or of the wonders of its spiritual devotion. They do not dwell on all these great things which cannot be separated from any true view of Hinduism. They take up certain abuses, they point to scandals that dishonor ancient fanes and pollute holy places. And, bringing those out into the light of day, they make them stand as the marks of this holy religion. We cannot answer them, alas! We cannot answer them because their reproaches are based on facts that we know to be true. Temples throughout modern India 
how far does the old consecrating influence still live in them today? In some, it is still found. In going into some of the Indian temples, one feels coming down into them, even in the outer courts, where stand those who are not Hindus by birth, and who are therefore not permitted to enter the sanctuary, one feels even there the holy influence which was once so potent. But it is faint and feeble, as though preparing to depart and to be felt no more. I have been into some of the temples here, where there is still some touch of the ancient power, still some vibrations of the ancient spiritual magnetism, still some influence that calms the mind and fills the heart with emotions of bhakti, with love to God and man. But those temples are few and far between, and are a small minority, instead of being everywhere, as they were in the older days. In a vast number, there is no influence at all, no more than there is in the world around them. In some, at least, the influence is of positive evil, and not of good, magnetism, where want of learning and want of purity have polluted the ancient magnetism that once dwelt therein. Why? Because when this great blessing of spiritual force is given to any material object or place, it is not given as a force that remains there unchanged, no matter what the surroundings. It tends, as do all energies, gradually to dissipate. Unless it is reinforced, unless it is renewed, it lessens in its potency. That there is still some left, some of it in these temples, is chiefly due to the crowds of pious worshippers who go thither to make their offerings to the gods. Their love and their devotion reinforce the spiritual power that still remains in some holy places, and the possibility is thus shown of what might return if duty were done on every hand. What is true of the temples is true of too many of the sacred images. They, too, have lost their ancient power and no longer radiate much of the celestial energy. But still, when a man with a heart of love goes to bow down before such an image, the god will send him blessing, even though he dwells not there habitually. For love in the human heart attracts the love of the great ones, and they answer, however unworthy the surroundings, where any soul of man is seeking after God. And the temple Brahmanas? You know as I know, that both in the south and in the north, it is no word of reverence that springs to the lips when people speak about the temple Brahmanas. Have I not been told in southern India, by man after man, religious, devoted, at heart thoroughly Hindu, worshippers in the temples, worshippers of the gods, that their great difficulty is that their temple priests are unlearned, and that they are profligate in life, as well as unversed in the knowledge that should be theirs. Have they not complained, in bitter grief, that this is the great hindrance to religion, that shame is continually being brought upon them? Have they not prayed that some help may be given them to educate the priesthood, and to render those pure who serve the gods? For if a man of evil life and foul thought stand beside the image of a god, receiving the offerings that are made, the foulness of his magnetism pours out upon the sacred image, and blasphemes it with a blasphemy worse a thousandfold than any attacks of missionaries can be, 
for no words of theirs can injure it much, but the ignorance and the impurity of the priests drive away the celestial energy. Do we not know that the very names of Mahats and Pandas carry to the ears of many who hear them associations of degradation and not of spiritual power, of shame and not of pride? Do we not know that if we stand at a sacred tirtha, we see there scenes that make us turn away in bitter shame, shocked at the rapacity of those who gather round the pilgrims, and who, in the very water that should be sacred to the blessed gods, absolutely strive with each other physically to drag the pilgrims into their own hands, for the sake of money? Can the gods come down to such places? Why, there are temples where learned and devout Hindus will not allow women of their families even to go. Can the gods come down to places where women are not safe? Can the holy ones descend where shame is wrought in the name of piety and religion? My brothers, these are the scandals that are hindering the growth of Hinduism. They are known, they are whispered from one to another. They are the cankers of this great religion, and they are eating away at its heart and turning it against its own children, who ought to be its most faithful lovers and most ardent admirers. Do we not know that too often the family guru is not even looked on with love and honor, not always because of Western education and falling away from religion, but because it is hard to give respect where there is nothing that is respectable? And that most sacred of all names, the name of guru, has come to be a name that some men shrink from using to any teacher they revere because of the shame that has been brought upon it by those who bear it unworthily. End of section 4 Recording by Olivia